I remember Nancy. Nancy was a twenty-something uh, high flyer in the city of London. She earned enormous amounts of money, drove a fast car, lived in a posh flat in the Barbican, and lived life to the full. Every night she was out with her friends. And then one day, unexpectedly, Nancy was sacked. She lost everything. Not one of Nancy's city friends ever rang her again. But an old school friend rang her. She was a Christian. And she took Nancy along to church. That's where I met Nancy first. Full of questions. Eager to know God. Or I remember Joy. Joy raised her children in a home with an abusive husband. Finally, the husband left, but frankly she was such an emotional wreck that she sank into alcoholism. But her husband's brother and his wife were Christians and over many years they prayed for joy and they helped joy. And finally, in late middle age, Joy decided to find out more about Christ. She never looked back. I knew her as a sprightly, happy, elderly lady. I remember uh, Priyan. Priyan was brought up in uh, Sri Lanka as a Hindu. He soon rejected that and became a vehement communist. He read everything there was, but he actually, uh, uh, after a few years, became disillusioned with uh, Marx's Das Kapital or Chairman Mao's Little Red Book, and he decided to open another book, the Bible. He was captivated by Jesus. Or I remember Trevor. Trevor was uh, a hard-drinking, cynical bachelor. But Trevor was diagnosed with cancer. I tried to speak to him several times about God, but um, frankly he was very cynical and very angry. But finally, actually only last year, Judy and I visited him now in a hospice. And to my complete surprise, Trevor said to me, you know, I've never really doubted God existed, but he's always been on the back burner. What do I need to do to be ready to meet him? So I told him. And we prayed together. And Trevor said to me, Thank you. I'm at peace. He was dead three days later. What have all those different people got in common, apart from the fact that they found Christ? Oh, perhaps there are some other things that they've got in common. But the most important thing I want you to notice, the most important answer to that question, what have they got in common, is the answer, not much. They didn't come from a common background. Their path to faith was not the same. Um, Frankly, I could have told you of 10, 20, 30 different people and you would see... Every single story is unique. 
The role of Christians in their lives, actually, was different in every case. Now, I point that out for a very important reason. It seems to me that today there is an obsession with techniques and simple formulas. Richard was uh, alluding to that um, uh, at the beginning. Never tell someone what your sermon you're going to preach if they're leading the service. They'll always steal your sermon beforehand. (coughs) But we are, aren't we? We're full of buzz phrases. Seeker-friendly services, low-cringe, cell churches, emerging church. There are evangelism courses like Evangelism Explosion, Contagious Christianity. There are simple gospel outlines that we studiously learn like the bridge diagram, the four spiritual laws, two ways to live and on it goes. I've, I've actually gained personally a lot from many of these initiatives. We've used many of their insights in our church life. But we must remember, people do not become Christians in simple, formulaic ways. And therefore a church that is really going to be able to successfully reach out to people is not likely to be a church that has invested all its energy in the latest fad the latest technique for how to be the perfect church. Now you won't have missed that in the next couple of weeks we are organising a week of events. We've entitled them uh, Longing, hoping that we can explain more about our faith and I I hope you're up for that. The jazz evening looks really great, tickets are selling. Um, uh, Do make sure you invite your friends. Um, The real event on Saturday night um, they are always positive uh, uh, events. We're, we're watching the Shawshank Redemption. If you saw it on the telly last night, then try and wipe that out in your mind and uh, come and watch it. Uh, come and watch it again. And then there's the barbecue, and, and uh, um, the the over 55s are doing a, a martyrs walk in in Oxford and so on. There's lots and lots of things we uh, we are doing, and uh, it's a great opportunity to invite our friends. But there is a danger. There is a danger that we think that um, the latest trendy thing, like the jazz evening, is the solution that will revolutionise our effectiveness as, as a church. See, in many ways, all these events are really just the window dressing, just the froth. Now let's not minimise those. If a, if, a, if a shop window is not dressed well, people will not go and see what the product is. Um, if you uh, drink uh, um, beer like me, you will know that a lot of beers benefit enormously from a good, f- a good head, a good froth on the top. Cappuccino is made be- uh, 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 um, uh, because of its froth. Let's not minimise those things, but they are not all there is. Actually, the New Testament shows virtually no interest in the things that we are so fill our church life with so much. Not that they're not interested in, in, uh, in spreading the gospel. On the contrary, everywhere the New Testament is, uh, is focused on this great spread of the gospel to every corner of the globe. But the New Testament writers knew that God's message spreads, God's church grows when it grows in maturity. 
not what it learns the nicest technique. We're going to see in a moment, Peter is perhaps more overtly keen amongst the New Testament letters that Christians should be spreading the gospel. But actually still his emphasis, if you've been here over the last few weeks, still his emphasis has been on the the joy of being a Christian, on the the vibrant community life that he expects Christians to have, on on developing a healthy appetite for for, uh, healthy things in our lives as we understand uh, our status as Christians and what God has, uh, has called us to. Because he knows actually that if those things are in, in place the gospel will spread. And spread it did, let me say, from these churches that Peter writes to. One of the earliest um, and non-biblical records of the spread of Christianity actually comes in a letter sent from Bithynia. It's one of the regions that Peter writes this letter letter to. In AD 112, um, uh, a man called Pliny the Younger was governor in Bithynia and um, he came across Christians. He was a bit confused about them. He wrote to the emperor Trajan for some advice. In that letter he speaks of a multitude. He says there are men of every age, of every rank, of both sexes, who are in danger, for this superstition is spreading like a contagion, not only into cities and towns, but into the country villages. These churches that Peter wrote to grew, spread, so that it came to the attention of the highest authorities in the world. Now this morning then, I want to dig underneath those techniques that so often obsess our minds. I want to look behind the window dressing, underneath the froth, and I want to ask what a quality Christian looks like, what a quality Christian witness looks like. And actually, um, I want to do it by just dispelling three um, popular misconceptions about sharing that hunger for Christ that hopefully all Christians have. But uh, we, popular misconceptions that we so often slip into. First is this. It's all about words. I think it's been one of the most common errors um, Uh, in the past and probably still today. We suppose that the success of the Gospel depends entirely on the the gifts of charismatic evangelists or dynamic preachers. We think that the the answer to all our problems uh, um, as we struggle to share our faith is to find a sufficiently gifted speaker and then to sit our friends in front of them. Well, that that has its place. It has its, its, its value. But Peter, as we will see, has something different to say. Actually, another form of this error is that we think, okay, well, perhaps I can't get my friends to sit in front of a dynamic preacher. That means I must be trained to answer every question that's fired at me, to explain the gospel with, with, with crystal clarity. Uh, all those things have their place. But um, and that's not Peter's emphasis. Look at 1 Peter 2, verse 12. You'll excuse me this morning that we flick around a bit. We're just trying to get a feel of this whole letter. 
Richard read it to us. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Or 1 Peter 2 verse 15. It is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. I remember vividly being solemnly told by a, a, a man that he needed training in evangelism, that it was my fault that I as a church leader hadn't uh, uh, trained him sufficiently in evangelism to uh, share the gospel and that was why there was no fruit in his life. I knew that actually that man's family life was in tatters, that he, he nurtured deep bitterness towards uh, other people and that his personal moral life was a mess. So I took my courage in both hands and I told him that I thought it was more important that he got his life in order than that he was trained about how to share the gospel. He gave me a flea in my ear, told me not to preach to him and sent me away. But you see, if God's church is not filled with good lives, if our life doesn't have a character that is different from the world around, then people will not listen no matter how many words there are. Now let me say, I do not mean perfection. There is sometimes better witness in someone who fails and sins but then humbly asks forgiveness than someone who is more successful at maintaining a facade. but different lives we must have. I remember once a friend of mine taking a, a Cambridge University professor to uh, hear an evangelistic talk and uh, the speaker at that talk was an extremely able apologist. He gave the most dazzling intellectual display that uh, really should have mesmerised even the best brain. I spoke to uh, that professor asked, uh, afterwards and I asked him what he made of it. And he said to me, words, only words. See, actually his wife was dying and uh, he was so miserable that he was abusing alcohol. And he'd spent his life with words and clever arguments. He knew how little help they were to him at that moment. Peter points out actually that words might be especially useless in the most close relationships we have. Look at chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. Wives, he says, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of, their li of your lives. In Peter's day, you see, wives were expected to follow the family religion. To become a Christian when the rest of the family wasn't was a massive act of rebellion. And uh, Peter says, don't compound that. Why constantly then spend your, send your time arguing the toss about Christianity? He knows you've become a Christian. 
Now let your life do some of the talking. Frankly, the same might be said to offspring whose parents don't believe. Let them see the change in your life, or perhaps sometimes with our friends. It's not that we deny or ignore that we are Christians, but in some relationships, frankly, words are not the most important form of witness. It is a great error then to think that uh, um, reaching out with the gospel is all about words. But the second uh, misconception is the opposite. It's not about words. See, some people latch on to uh, Peter's statement that uh, Christian wives, wife might win her husband over literally without a word as if it was uh, Peter's sole advice on the matter. It's becoming very popular in some, some circles to, uh, to quote some advice that is said to have come from St Francis of Assisi to his monks that they should preach the gospel always but only use words if they have to. Actually, um, Francis never said that. It's a 20th century fabrication. See, the uh, technique here is that simply by um, loving people or by having uh, um, uh, initiatives of, of, of practical care that somehow we will, we will love people into the kingdom. It becomes very popular sometimes in reaction to that sort of sterile, words-only type of approach. But Peter doesn't say it's not about words didn't say that in uh, our reading in 1 Peter 3, did he? Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. Our ability uh, and preparedness to give an answer is important. We need to understand our faith. We need to be able to communicate, communicate it both as individuals, but frankly, we will vary in our ability to do that. That's why as a church we provide an environment for people to have answers. The answer we may give as an individual is, well, I can't explain it that well to you. Why don't you come along to our Thursday night doorway meeting where we have an opportunity to, uh, uh, to discuss regularly in an open forum why don't you come along and hear uh, someone explain the, the spiritual roots of jazz to a jazz evening or whatever? The answer may come within the community. But we must be able to explain our faith. Notice that Peter says it will be the quality of our lives that elicits the question. You see, they always be ready to give an answer for the hope, a, a reason for the hope. He expects that people will have noticed something. That resilient joy that he's spoken about in 1, 1 Peter 1. Or perhaps that, that quality community that he's spoken about in 1, 1 Peter 2. Or the, the purified moral life that he speaks about again and again through his letter. They will have noticed something. And they'll say, why? Notice as well that um, we must be very careful 
not only with um, the answer that we give, but in how we give that answer, with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. I, I grew up in a family that, um, where all of us children argued as our sort of recreation. Um, at the dinner table, um, there was uh, one of the uh, water glasses, which was different from the others, had a, had a sort of enigmatic pattern engraved on it. And when we ran out, as children, when we ran out of things to uh, argue about, we would start disputing over whether the pattern represented pondweed or frog spawn. And we did it for years. We even on occasions to trump one another would produce from under the table a natural history book and show, uh, show what frog spawn or uh, that particular type of pondweed was like. My father was completely exasperated but we loved it. It means actually that as I've grown up I'm, I am very, very prone to win an argument and lose a friend. See, that's not, that's not how to, uh, to bear witness to our faith. Now, there must be gentleness and respect. There must be a humility before a person. There must be a clear conscience as well. We're not about spin. We're not about trying to find the most sophisticated way to defeat, uh, uh, to defeat their argument. And sometimes in, in, a, in a conversation we may, in good, to, in good conscience, have to say there are embarrassing things about the history of the church. Look at the Crusades. We may have to say there are things that confuse me. It's about honestly talking to people not being sales reps. And certainly not bashing them over their heads. We are wanting to win people, not win arguments. Now don't buy this idea though that uh, all that we need to do is um, somehow reform our practical life and we will never need to speak a word but people will be loved into the kingdom everywhere in the New Testament it is expected people will need to understand what we stand for and we must be ready to explain it now there's another misconception that I think um, underlies an awful lot of the, the techniques and fads that uh, uh, float around in, in the Christian church. It's the misconception that somehow if we get it right it'll be easy. Somehow if we get it right everyone will be our friend. Everyone will respect us. Country Life magazine um, has just run a competition. I don't habitually read Country Life, I assure you, but I was sitting in a waiting room and happened to, uh, to see, I think it's the latest edition. The competition was to find Britain's best-loved clergyman. 
and the portraits of the finalists were, were extraordinary. Um, there was the hunting vicar who uh, blesses his hounds from the horse and then throws his vestments to the wind, said the article, I think, and gallops off to the hunt. They loved him, apparently. Or the ex-army padre, whose sermons, um, people said pointedly, were short, <coughs> full of jokes, and I quote, full of his philosophy of life, whatever that means. And the winner was a delightful man from uh, North Hertfordshire, a village that I know, actually, who, um, amongst other things, had shaved off his beard for charity. Sadly, in God's eyes, you see, being best loved is not a high accolade for vicars or for anyone else. Uh, everywhere in, in, in this letter that Peter writes, he expects that Christians will face difficult opposition, that Christians will make enemies. He expects in, two, in chapter 2 verse 12 that they will be accused of doing wrong. He expects in chapter 2 verse 19 that they will face unjust suffering. He expects in chapter 3 verse 14 that they will suffer for what is right. He expects that people will speak maliciously against your faith in Christ. In chapter 3 verse 16 and on it goes through the letter. Finally, he says in chapter 4, verse 12, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though you were doing, as though something strange were happening to you. In fact, he says earlier, to this you were called. Truth is, we cannot be everyone's friend. And sadly, I fear that so much of what... Um, um, what passes as uh, best practice amongst churches is, 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 is actually just ways of trying to avoid the pain of standing up for Christ and the difficulty. Now, says Peter, we need to make sure that none of these accusations are ever true. But when the gospel impacts on society, opposition will arise. I wonder whether we're ready for that. For instance, are we prepared to be kicked out of this um, building because of public opposition? Some people, you know, have tried to raise a campaign for that to happen. Are you prepared, prepared perhaps more personally, to lose friends for the sake of the gospel? Are you prepared to have slanderous gossip spread about you at work because you invited people to the jazz evening? Actually, you see, the gospel spread in at least the region of Bithynia amidst the terrible opposition. In that letter of Pliny the Younger that I quoted from, Pliny actually explains to uh, Emperor Trajan that he's not quite sure what to do with these Christians because on the surface of it he says they don't seem particularly dangerous. Most of their, their, their strange rights are private, he says. They are morally upright individuals. They don't disturb the peace. 
The one unfortunate thing is that they won't worship the image of the emperor. So he explains, uh, in rather matter-of-fact language, this is his practice. He says, I ask them whether they are Christians or not. If they confess that they are Christians, I ask them again, and a third time, intermixed with threatenings and questions. And if they persevere in their confession, I order them to be executed. For I do not doubt, but let their confession be of any sort whatsoever. This, this positiveness and inflexible obstinacy uh, must be punished. We have the letter that Trajan sent back to Pliny as well. Trajan, Trajan reassures him, you've done the right thing. These were our brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll meet them one day. Perhaps they're looking on now. I wonder what they would think as we wonder and, th- and fret about the minor discomforts that we may face. You know, but they died for their faith. But actually like, uh, like seed in the ground there grew up a harvest and a crop that was far, far beyond their numbers. You know, perhaps that's the most dangerous error of all, isn't it? thought that somehow the uh, model Christian life is an easy life that will have no opposition that I can sail through it ducking and weaving keeping all people my friends the only way you can do that is by betraying Christ and betraying frankly the thousands down through the ages nay millions who have died for their faith and the thousands today who face death this week my mailbag as usual was full of uh, conferences and meetings and publications promising me that if I went to them this church could be transformed and I threw them all in the bin and I begged God that he would let us hear this message of 1 Peter and so live really fruitful lives for Christ.